dark, light, the good, the very good, our ending nearly written before our beginning, hearts hardened, eyes blinded, but again a great light has shone in what could have been the end. For through him, we need not stay in the dark. Though just glimpses, visions, and revelations in part, our advocate leads us on. And when he comes back, we'll be home. I have a question for you. Have you ever had to stand in a courtroom in front of a judge? Maybe you don't want to answer that. I have. And it happened in Superior Court in front of a Superior Court judge. In fact, not only did I have to stand before him, I also had to go into his chambers. Now, here's what happened. It was a murder trial, and I was selected to be an alternate juror on the jury. And I didn't want to do it. And I had two what I thought were very valid and good reasons. And before you judge me for that, listen to my reasons. I, I think they were pretty good. So he called me in and, and he wanted to find out a little bit more about why I didn't want to serve. And I explained, number one, that I was a pastor of a, a, a church that didn't have a lot of staff and and uh, I had to do all the preaching and, and that meant Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday nights. And I, you know, I did counseling and ministration and I just had a lot on my plate and I couldn't imagine uh, for the next three weeks that the trial was forecasted for that, how I would get all that done. And I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, that's not good enough, Mr. Hummel. What's your second reason? And I felt very intimidated by that. So I said, well, I said, my wife and I are adopting our youngest child and uh, the trial is, or at the hearing is supposed to happen sometime in the next three weeks at municipal court. And, you know, we've been working at this and praying for this so long, so hard. I just, I just hate to miss that. And he looked at me and he said, that's not a problem. So I'm going to have the case moved up here to Superior Court. And after the trial, you, your wife, and your little boy come in here and we'll sign the papers and make it official. <laughs> that was it. And I just, I walked away absolutely amazed. This guy had so much power and so much authority. And, you know, as I sat through the trial the next couple of weeks, I just realized that he was in charge of his courtroom. And everybody, because of where he was sitting, you know, at that big desk, that big bench, everybody was kind of looking up to him. And you had a sense why you looked up to him because he knew the law and he was in control and he was going to make sure things were done the right way. The reason I tell you that story is because all of us, all of us are someday going to appear in God's courtroom. And all of us, are gonna stand before him and we are all going to be judged. I wanna welcome you to our new season, season eight in our series from head to leb. Season eight is all about tomorrow. What I mean by that is we're gonna be talking about the future and Jesus' words about the future. And it just so happens that this weekend we're looking at Jesus' words about judgment and the fact that judgment is coming in the future. Now, 
a lot of us struggle with this whole concept of judgment. Humanity in general doesn't like to talk about judgment because number one, we just don't like being judged. Although for some reason, we think we have the right to judge others. Have you ever noticed that? You know, these days you've got the left judging the right and the right that's judging the left. And we're all acting like we should be able to live in a world that is judgment free. And it's all those people on the right that are causing the problem. And it's all those people on the left that are causing the problem. Or what you'll hear today is that, you know, that it's those Christians, it's those followers of God. They're the ones that cause the problem. They're aggressive. They're imperialistic. They're, you know, they think they know everything. And yet the truth is, there is no such thing as being non-judgmental. I mean, already at our campuses or at the venue that you're watching or at home, wherever you are right now, you've already made certain judgments about me, about the message, about your experience so far, about the people who are in the room around you. It just, it's just part of our nature. And the truth is, all of us, you and I, we must all face a judgment day. Every one of us is going to report to God someday. Now, our text that we're going to look at this, this uh, weekend is found in John chapter 12. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to encourage you as kind of a homework assignment to take some time to read through that entire chapter a little bit later on. We're just going to focus on a small part of it. Because in this passage of scripture, John chapter 12, we discover that Jesus is beginning to feel uneasy. And the reason he's beginning to feel troubled is because Jesus realizes that he himself is about to enter a courtroom. First, he's going to enter a courtroom that is run by humanity, Pilate and the Jews. But he's also going to enter his father's courtroom. And there in that courtroom, he is going to be judged. So Jesus' troubled spirit comes to the fact that he's about to be judged twice, first by man and then by his father. You say, well, what's that all about? Why would Jesus be judged? We're going to get to that in just a couple of moments. But I want to zero in on a portion of the scripture that we're going to be looking at together. And let's read it. Here it goes. John chapter 12, verse 42. <clears throat> it said, Many people did believe in him, referring to Jesus. However, including some of the Jewish leaders. Aha, surprise. So there were Jewish leaders who did believe in Jesus. But, you always have to be careful of that, right? But they, that is, others of the Jewish leaders who believed in him, wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. So on the one hand, they, they would say, yes, intellectually, we believe in him, but we are so afraid of, of admitting that because we don't want to lose social status. We don't want to be outcasts. We want to we wanna fit in. So it's like they're trying to have their feet in two worlds. One, you know, we want to we wanna believe in Jesus, but on the other hand, we, we also want to be accepted by our tribe. We want to be accepted by our peers we don't want to be left out. And all of us know what that is like, don't we? I mean, your students at school or you at your job. You know, I've run into so many people who say, I believe in Jesus, right, when they're in church or when they're in the company of other Christians. But at school or at work, 
when they're around people who aren't believers, they want to be so accepted that what happens is they, they behave like those who are not followers of Christ. And it ends up being very confusing for people when they hear you say, I'm a Christian, but they see you and hear you and watch you living and behaving like, like non-Christians, right? So it says, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. In other words, I want to be accepted by people more than I want to be accepted by God. Jesus shouted to the crowds. Can you imagine the passion of Jesus shouting now? This is like uh, his last public discourse that we're going to read. If you trust me, you are trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me is claimed deity. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. Jesus goes on, he says, I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me. For I've come to save the world, not to judge it. So that's what Jesus is saying is, my mission right now is to bring salvation. John 3, 16, 17, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to judge the world or to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, watch what happens. He says, I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me, for I have come to save the world and not to judge it. But, all right, so you always got to watch for that, okay? But all who reject me, and my message will be, so this is future, will be judged on the day of judgment. So there is going to be a day of judgment, Jesus says. I'm not here to judge right now, but there is a day coming when you will appear in my Father's courtroom and you will be judged, and you're going to be judged by the truth that he has spoken from Genesis to Revelation. I don't speak on my own authority, the Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it, and I know his commands lead to eternal life, so I say whatever the Father tells me to say. Now let me show you graphically, in essence, what, what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying that there's a point in time when God is going to judge us by his word. And that is in the future, and it's called the day of judgment. So history and time is linear. We're all moving to that moment, that day, when all of us, you and me, all of us are going to appear before God, and we are going to be judged by God, by his word, by his truth that he has revealed to you and to me on that great day of judgment. Now, notice this principle. There is, there has to be a judgment or there is no hope. Did you hear that? There has to be a judgment. In the end, there has to be a judgment or there's no hope. In fact, that, that principle is true for all of life. There has to be judgment in life. Somebody has to sit on the bench. Somebody has to 
oversee the courtroom of life, so to speak, and there has to be judgment. When we were reading the passage of Scripture, you may have noticed that Jesus talks about light and darkness. Now he has brought light into this dark world so that we can see. In verse 32, if you read earlier in John 12, he says that when he is lifted up, a reference to the cross, okay, he says he will draw all men to himself. And the idea there is like, is like a light that is lifted up in the darkness. You know, if you put a light out in the darkness, you'll see that all the little bugs are drawn to that light, right? If you're walking in the darkness and you see light, you're drawn to that light. Because with the light, you can see where you are and you can see where you're going. It's dangerous to walk in the darkness and have no light. In fact, I've been watching a little series on, on uh, television about an explorer, an adventurer. And uh, you kind of go with him on the adventure. And this adventure is taking place in Guyana, South America. He starts at the very south and, and he makes his way through the Amazon, uh, Amazon jungle rivers and streams and you know, uh, mountains and uh, grasslands all the way up to the northernmost village on the Atlantic Ocean. And so you go with him on this journey. It's a dangerous journey. It's during the rainy season, the beginning of the rainy season. And there are a few times when he uses the camera light at night to kind of tell you what's going on around or to take you someplace. And, and he says, you know, it's really dangerous because he's barefoot walking around in the Amazon jungle in the dark. All I have is this little light. Without this light, I would be in serious trouble. And he's absolutely right, because you never know what you're going to step on <laughs> or what you're going to step into. Light is so important to us. And so Jesus says, I have come to light the path for you. I've come to give you a way to journey, a way to go, so that you know how to walk. And, and what that means is so that you know how to think and so that you know how to behave. I want to give you the right way to think, and I want to give you the right way to behave. But what we have to watch out for is what I'll call a false sense of security or a false light. What I mean by that is that humanism comes along and humanism says, I have the real light. I have the better way to think and I have the better way to behave. And all of a sudden what we find ourselves doing is we're walking by what we think is the light of the world, but it's actually darkness. See, that, that sounds a little bit confusing. Can you explain that to me for a moment? Well, just think about the world that you and I are living in right now, where honestly, what is considered right is now considered wrong. <laughs> and what is considered wrong is now being considered right, where good is bad and you know, bad is now good. And what we thought was evil, we're being told is good. And what we thought was good, we're being told is evil. And I'm telling you what, it's, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's like calling the darkness light. And it leads to terrible consequences. It leads to all kinds of missteps and trouble. And so the question I want to ask you and, and ask myself is, am I walking according to the light of God's word, the true light? Or am I walking by the light of this world, which isn't light at all? It's darkness. If all you're ever used to is darkness, you don't have a concept of light. 
And so the more, the more we move away from God and the more we move away from God's word, what happens is generation after generation after generation gets used to that darkness and literally becomes, comes to the point where they call that darkness light itself. And we're watching that happen, especially in our own nation, our own country. And it's very disturbing. It's very distressing. And where are we going to be in the generations to come if we don't live by the true light of God's word and speak up lovingly, compassionately, but speak up for the light and the truth of God's word? I mean, imagine a world where, where there is no judgment, where there is no clear sense of right and wrong. How many of you are raising kids at home? Many of you are, right? Do you have rules at home? Do you make certain judgments at home? Do you let them know that some things are right and some things are wrong? Of course you do, right? You do that for their sake and your sake. Imagine what would happen if you showed up one day and said, from now on, there are no rules in our home. Everybody can do as they see fit in their own eyes and their own judgment. You would have chaos and you'd have anarchy. It would just, it would just be bedlam, wouldn't it? You would, never, you would never stand for that. Somebody has to say, here are the rules and here's how we live by the rules and here are the consequences when we don't. And that's what we're struggling with in our society, isn't it? What are the rules that we're gonna live by? And we're watching a society that wants to reject any kind of Judeo-Christian set of rules or morality or ethics. And the way it's going about rejecting that is to create anarchy and chaos, to question it all. And to question those who have authority and those who have power. So that those guidelines and those laws, those rules can be unseated. But guess what? We can't live with chaos and anarchy. So somebody that has to step back in, this is what every revolution is about. Somebody else has to step back in and create new rules to live by. And oftentimes the ones they use to create the anarchy, they then turn around and punish or jail or kill or get rid of. We've watched it all through history. And we're at a dangerous time in our culture, in our society today. Mark my words, we have history to go by. The question isn't, you know, can we live without rules? Can we live non-judgmentally? The question is, by whose rules will we live by? And who is going to be our authority and our judge? Without judgment, listen, Without judgment in life, you have meaninglessness. Without judgment, you have unending retaliation. And we don't think about that very often. So let me talk to you about that for, a, for just a few moments. Why, why judgment is so important. Otherwise, we have unending retaliation. There's a man by the name of um, Miroslav Volv. He's Croatian, and uh, he's a theologian, and uh, he heads up what is called the Center of Faith and Culture at, at uh, Yale University. And uh, he believes that in order to truly practice nonviolence, you must believe in divine vengeance. Did you get that? Let me 
share that again. In order to truly practice nonviolence, you must believe in divine vengeance. And he goes on and he says, and that idea is not very popular in the West. But he says, if you're like me and you have spoken to people whose country has been decimated by war and violence, who've lost their homes, whose women have been raped, whose children have been killed, whose husbands have been murdered or tortured, who have lost everything. If you have ever had to be around people like that, he says, then you'll understand what I am talking about. Bull says that the only thing that can prevent total retaliation is belief in divine judgment. He goes on, he says this. He says, the only means of prohibiting violence is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it come, comes from God. Violence thrives today, watch this, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. In other words, if I don't have a belief in a concept that someday I'm going to appear in God's courtroom, that we're all going to appear in God's courtroom and be held accountable to his truth and that there are consequences to that, then why not get even in this life? Why not take vengeance in this life? Why not retaliate? Defend yourself. Protect yourself. And that just leads to multiplied violence. Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be uh, war. Sometimes war is justified. I'm not saying, you know, that there shouldn't be consequences. Of course, I'm, I believe there should be consequences. I believe there should be a courtroom. I believe there should be authority. I believe there should be judgment in this world in these days. I'm just saying to you that when we, when we try to get rid of it, when we try to dismiss it, we try to say it's not necessary, when we don't believe there's an ultimate judge, and ultimate morality to be judged by, it can only lead to chaos and anarchy and retaliation and vengeance and bloodbath and, and all the things that we have seen in history and we're watching play out in the world today. You, I'm sure, have had moments in your life when you've been hurt and you've wanted to get even You've wanted to retaliate, but I hope and pray that as a follower of Christ, especially, you've stopped yourself. And you've realized that someday you're gonna stand before God and be accountable for your attitude and your actions. And so rather than taking vengeance or rather than getting even, you've made that choice, that decision. You know what, I'm going to honor God in this. I'm gonna let him settle the score. The Bible says, vengeance belongs to me, says the Lord. As far as you and I are concerned, we're, we're called to do good. We're called to love. We're called to show mercy. We're called to show grace. In this last season of life, these last couple of years, you know, as Christians, let's be honest, we haven't always behaved well, have we? We've been kind of vengeful at times and angry at times and have felt justified in, in being abusive with our language or our attitudes toward those that we are in disagreement with rather than realizing they're gonna have to answer to God someday. I am free from having to be their judge. What I can do, however, is I can speak the truth in love to them. I can in love speak the truth to them even when they reject it or even when they persecute me for it. 
I've got to follow the model and the example that Jesus laid down in life for me. I've got to walk like he walked as well. So listen, here's the perplexing thing. You ready for this? Even though there must be a judgment day, we cannot endure or survive one. How do you like that? The first thing I told you is, without judgment, there's no hope. Now I'm basically saying to you, if there is judgment, there is no hope. Because none of us are perfect. None of us measure up. If we're going to be judged, then what are we going to be judged for? Let's explore that a little bit. And there's a clue that's given to us over in John chapter 12, verse 37. Here's what it says. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. Why? Well, we're told, and we already looked at this passage in verse 42. It says, many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but, remember, they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. So in essence, they are no different than the unbelievers. So when God judges our hearts, when he judges you and me, when he judges this world, what is the basis on, on which he judges us? The answer to that question is, he judges us according to our hearts. Not what we simply say, but he examines us even deeper. He knows the motives of our hearts. And you know, there's something I never realized before until I was reading Tim Keller's take on this passage of Scripture, and it just jumped out at me, and it's so true. And basically, it goes like this. When Jesus confronted those men, all right, and women as well, when Jesus confronted them with the grace of God, that's the love of God. That's the favor of God. You know what it did? It actually brought out their pride. You ever thought about that? You would expect that the grace of God would bring out repentance in our lives. It would bring out praise and, and awe in our lives that God would be so gracious and so merciful to us. But in a lot of people's lives, what it exposes, what it brings out is this sense of a pride, the sense of arrogance. It's easy to say with our mouth, you know, and with our mind, oh, yes, I believe in God. But there's 18 inches that belief has to get down into, and that is down into my heart. When you're confronted with the grace and the love of God, what does that bring out of you? I want you to rethink with me for just a moment the story of the prodigal son. Many people know the product, that story, even people who aren't followers of Christ. And we oftentimes think about that rebellious son who, who basically tells his dad, I wish you were dead because he wants his inheritance now. And he goes off and he spends it in immoral and wild and terrible living. You know that story, right? His father waits for him to come back every day. And meanwhile, the other brother is at home and the other brother is, you know, is submissive to his father. The other brother dots the I's, crosses the T's, does everything right, correct? He does everything right. 
Then the prodigal son comes home. When he comes home, the father greets him with outstretched arms of love and forgiveness and compassion that causes the prodigal son to finally repent for what he's done. It's a beautiful scene until the other brother shows up. And what does he do? He gets mad. He gets mad at his father. Why? Because he says to his father, read there in Luke 15, he says to his father, look at all the things that I have done for you. Look how well I have behaved. Look at my righteousness, dad. I deserve a party. I deserve, I have earned your favor. Who's really, who's really the lost son in that story? Yeah, it was the prodigal son, but who's really the lost son now? It's that older brother. Who's Jesus talking about here in John chapter 12? He's talking about what we would say in modern days, seminary professors, pastors, theologians. He's talking about people that believed in the Ten Commandments, believed in God, prayed, gave alms, fasted. And he's saying you're doing all of that for the wrong reason. You're doing that thinking that somehow that earns you God's favor. And it doesn't. As Isaiah put it, as Paul put it, all our efforts in front of God are like filthy rags. All of our efforts and so Jesus goes on this passage and he says, you know, there's coming a day when all of us are going to have to stand before God and all of us are going to be judged by God. And if you're like me at this point, you're thinking to yourself, then there is no hope. <laughs> there really is no hope. Yes, I agree. We need judgment or we'll have anarchy and chaos. But if we have judgment, especially and stand before God someday, there's no hope. Because in all honesty, all of us, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us are guilty. Do you realize that even the heathen, even the, that person who's never heard about God is going to be judged by whatever truth they have? Read Romans chapter 2. Whatever truth we have, that's going to be used. That's what Jesus is saying, is that's going to be used to, to judge us. And guess what? There's none of us with even the little truth that we might have that perfectly live by that truth. You say, well, this has been a downer of the message. Do you have anything positive to say? Because I just feel like I'm going to go in the courtroom and it's going to be all over. Well, guess what? Here's the good news. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, We've already had our judgment day. In Jesus Christ, we already have had our judgment day. That's why Jesus did this. Remember that verse? He said, it says there that Jesus shouted to the crowds, if you trust me, you're not only trusting me, but also God who sent me. Hear the passion in Jesus' shout. Put your faith, put your trust in me because I'm going to take on God's judgment. The judgment you deserve on myself. Now think about this, okay? Think about Jesus who is very God. 
It's as though he's, he's sitting at that great big, you know, bench, that big desk. And he steps out from behind it. And he comes down to the courtroom floor. He becomes human. He becomes flesh. He takes on flesh. And he looks at us eye to eye. And then he drops down to his knees. And now we're looking down at him and he's humbly washing our feet, a sign that he's come not to be served, as the Bible says, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And then he's hoisted up on the cross. And there on the cross, he's judged by his father. And he looks down on us. And he looks down on us in mercy and in grace and forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful? You know, you and I go through life and we are constantly being judged. We are. Like I said, even now, even in the last 10 minutes, some of you have passed judgment on me, <laughs> on others sitting around you, or you're thinking about somebody at work, or somebody in the family, or somebody that upset you, and, and, and you're judging them. People are always judging us. They judge us by our looks, by our body shape. They judge us by what we wear. They judge us by what we drive. They judge us by what we live in. They judge us by our success or lack of success, by our, by our abilities, by our talents, constantly being judged. Isn't it awesome to know that the only one we should ever be concerned about being judged by stepped down and was judged for us. The judge was judged so we would not have to be judged. That is grace. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad there's coming a day when in that courtroom, Jesus will speak up and say, Father, I took her, I took his, I took their judgment for them. They're innocent. And the Father will smile and accept you as one of his own, an adopted child of God. Now, why wouldn't we want that? Why wouldn't you want that? Why would we want to live in the anarchy and the chaos of sin? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much that you have taken our judgment out on your son so that we can be forgiven. So that load can be taken off of us so we can walk in the light of your grace and in your truth. Father, we live in a world right now that, that wants to accuse you of being an unfair judge. That wants to accuse your true and sincere followers of being judgmental people. And sometimes we're guilty of it, Lord. God, I pray and ask, help us to help the world see by our own attitude and by our own actions toward others, oh God, that you are a God who forgives, that you're a God who sets free, that you're a God who reconciles. And for that, we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.